0: Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to walk through uh, beginning in verse 10. uh, What we saw, if you're just joining with us, and we're going through Malachi, we spent the last two weeks and we're looking at the concept where the nation of Israel has specifically drifted away from God. And what we saw in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, that responsibility lies primarily with the spiritual leaders, the priest, the priest. Now, what we're going to see is a clear transition that we're no longer talking about the priest in verse 10, and I can kind of show you how that develops as we read through the text together. But now we're talking about the impact of the priest upon the people. Now, there's a tendency, as you see this kind of transition in Scripture, that we would blame. and We would say, ah, well, the rest of Malachi, and therefore even the rest of the Old Testament and all the New Testament... That's the priest's fault. And all we do is we just blame the priest because the priest the ones that led us this way and the leader got us here. And so since the leader was bad, then that's why we are the way we are. So let's just keep on going. So there's a clear, I think, break in this transition where it says, hey, nation of Israel, your sin is your sin. You have been influenced by the priest. You've been misled at times by the priest. But you do bear responsibility for your decisions. You bear responsibility for the sin that you have. So I'm going to walk through, uh, beginning in verse 10, we pick up Malachi chapter 2. Again, this is English Standard Version. I think and believe, looking at the other translations that most of you have, you should be able to follow along without much problem. Um, remember in Malachi, we're having a conversation between God and his people. So God's speaking here in verse 10, have we not all one father, has not one God created us why then are we faithless to one another profaning the covenant of our fathers these are questions that God is posing in verse 10 he says basically this nation of Israel you were nothing you didn't even exist and then I created you so that you could be my people and then in creating you to be my people I was watching over you, and he kind of, in essence, he's recapping for them again. Remember when I led you out of captivity in Egypt? Remember those plagues that I sent to deliver you? Remember that whole Red Sea crossing thing? You remember that? Remember me? I'm the one who brought you here. And then he says that last question, you see the first question? Don't we have one father? Isn't God our father? That's what he's leading them to ask themselves. Isn't God our Father? Second question Didn't God create us? And then he asks this third question, which is really the point, the pinnacle of it. He says, Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So God is speaking here in context. He is telling us this He says, Hey, catch this. If God is your God, that should change how you act in Christian community. If God has saved you through Jesus Christ, then that, Him saving you, is never intended to leave you the same. But instead, He's not talking about marriage here, He's talking about the community of people who are God followers. Christ, we would say, worshipers. Jesus changes how we treat each other within the Jesus culture that we live in. If you and I, according to this teaching, in verse 10, if you and I treat each other, Christian to Christian, the same way lost people apart from Christ, apart from God, treat each other, there's no distinction between us. Jesus makes a difference in our lives. Yes, we've got that. But that difference in our lives impacts each other as we begin to treat each other differently that's why then Paul for example has this this tendency to say we shouldn't gossip about each other we shouldn't slander each other we shouldn't murder each other we should not treat each other like you're a lost person and I'm a lost person But Jesus living inside of me, and for the nation of Israel specifically, you being the people of God means that you treat each other differently than how the world treats itself. You and I have to learn this, have to apply this. How do we treat one another? Well... I'm a Christ follower. I have Christ living inside of me. And that means that I'm still a sinner. But I've got Christ living inside of me. And so when I look at you and I respond to you in my action, my attitude, anything that I do, I'm not supposed to do it like I want to do it. But I am surrendered to the idea of treating you the way God instructs and leads me to treat you. And can I tell you, what Jesus is going to say to his disciples there at the end of his life on earth, he says this, this is how the world will know that we are his. Because we treat each other differently. Oh, what a beautiful concept. Lost people will see Friendship Baptist Church members, and without us technically even saying a word of evangelism, Lost people will see your love and your treatment of each other, and they'll be drawn to your Savior who makes that difference in your life. You See that? This is the foundation for us. He's no longer talking specifically to the priest. He's saying, if you are a Christian, then Christians treat Christians differently. Now, it's important that we have that because he moves on to verse 11. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. That specific nation of Israel, tribe of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. Judah has been faithless. And then here's this word that we see just a few times in the Old Testament. Judah has been an abomination. It says an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Two different locations. So biblical geography tells us this. There's a sin... That the people of God have been committing and they do it all over the nation. That's Israel, everywhere they go. But Jerusalem is a very specific pinpoint city. It's the capital, even more specific, it's the spiritual, religious capital. So it says that the people of God are sinning everywhere across the nation. That is not saying it's right, he's identifying it, but that's... Definitely being generated the capital, the center, the heart of the nation. This faithfulness is going on there. Now, watch. It says, For Judah, what's happening here? All right. It says in verse 11, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, as God loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So the nation of Israel, apparently, in verse 11, In the holy city of God, Jerusalem, as you read through the Old Testament, it's going to be holy city of God, New Testament, holy city of God. In the holy city of God, the spiritual central hub of the entire nation of Israel, God's chosen people, he says that their number one faithless sin is this. They're pursuing false gods. They're chasing after false gods. And so as they're chasing after false gods, now catch this. They really want to keep being the people of God. Right? They really want to keep getting the blessings of God. Hey God, when we're in captivity if you do that whole plague thing again, get me out of here, that'd be great. And so they want to be blessed as the people of God. But they also want to chase after things that aren't God. They love to chase after things that are not God. And they want to give their heart to things that are false gods. Where? In the holy city. Where? In the holy nation of God's holy people. And so I ask you. You think God's good with that? You think God's okay with that? So Malachi relaying the words of the Lord it says that they have married the daughter of a foreign god. So in context, we have to see what does it mean they've married the daughter of a foreign god. The men of Judah see the pagan women surrounding the nation and they are attracted to them. Now, let's clarify just a couple of things here. Men are going to be, should be, attracted to women. Yeah? And so, is there a problem then when a man who says, God, you're my God, there are no other gods, you are Yahweh, you are Jehovah, you're the only God, I worship you, I give you my heart. Hey, how's it going, baby? Is there a problem with that? Absolutely. The men of God who are called to a higher standard to make God their God These men see women. The attraction to be attracted to a woman is not a sin for the men. To chase after the women is dangerous because these women and these pagan nations surrounding Israel they're worshiping other gods. So quick parallel here what we would kind of say in our culture is this if you are a Christian and you commit yourself in an intimate relationship with someone who is not a Christian, you will be influenced. Period. Well, now I could win them to the Lord. Okay. Okay. Or. It's called gambling. Since we're going to get on it, let's get on everything, right? Let's throw out all kinds of words, right? You ready? So here's the idea. Okay. The concept for us here is this. These people of God who are supposed to be completely sold out to God, they begin to intermarry with people who hate God, aren't interested in God, pursue other gods and deny the one true God. Is in that marriage relationship is there going to be any influence? This is can you know, be multiple choice, be true false. Is is there going to be any influence in that church? Yes. Man is either going to influence this woman or man is going to be, be influenced by this woman. Any other scenarios you can think of? Maybe we'll be intimately, sexually connected together, but there won't be any influence at all. No. There's going to be influence. So what we see here is the nation of Israel, specifically now we're targeting the men of Israel... They're beginning to chase the women who worship foreign gods. And God says, i got a problem with that because I'm a jealous God. And being a jealous God is not something new for God. He's been a jealous God ever since he's been God. And so in being a jealous God who's always been a jealous God, he's always going to be a jealous God. And so anything that you pursue based on being influenced by someone else to pursue it, you're being influenced away from a jealous God. And He's not okay with it. He hates it. He hates that He loves you so much and you don't love Him, but give your love intentionally to something or someone else. He hates that. Honestly, we would think less of God if He were any different. Can you get that? I mean, just a, just a glorious idea here. God loves you enough to be jealous for you. He pursues you, chases after you, doesn't want you talking to any other gods. mm Especially since He knows they're worthless. So God is longing for you, pursuing you, and saying, I want to show you the best possible fullness of all the goodness that I can pour out in your life, but you're chasing after gods who can't do that. You're chasing after satisfaction in your life that's not really lasting satisfaction. I want to give you my best because I want to give you me, is what God says. Now, verse 12 how does God respond to this idea of men of God, men of Israel, chasing after women who worship false idols, and then those men being influenced to worship false idols? God says in verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so linguistically, there's a lot of different translations, and that's really kind of a lot of Hebrew that gets mixed up in there, kind of hard to figure that out. So let me take a swing at it. You ready? God's not okay with you chasing after a false god that lies to you, deceives you, will trick you and pull you away from him. He's not okay with it. And so one of the ways that he corrects us and teaches us is he says, when you have false gods in your life and you refuse to confess those and repent of those, turn from those completely... I'm going to respond by withholding my best from you. I'm not going to give you everything that I want to give you. I'm not going to show you the full extent of my love. I'm not going to pour out my blessings in your life because I want you to see that I'm good and long to come back to me. Now, that's what's happening. This is, I guess you would say, sin number one. The men of Israel are chasing after women who were leading them away to worship false and worthless gods. It continues. Verse 13. And this second thing you do. So there's two things now. One is you're chasing after those women who lead you away to worship false gods. But it says the second thing that you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it, from, uh, accepts it with favor from your hand. That's not the problem. That's the result. So what they're doing is they're coming before God, and they say, hey, I love this other God. I'm chasing after this other God. But then they're coming to church, and they're laying down at church and crying and raising their hands in worship and falling all over the place and all this stuff like this because they're saying, oh, God, I love you so much. And it's called a show. A show. And speaking of someone who's in my past done it, I can tell you, I know what it's like to curse the Lord on the other side of the door and walk in and raise my hand in worship. I know what that's like firsthand. This is what's happening in the nation of Israel. They're coming before God saying, tricked ya, tricked ya. You thought we loved you. And they're very sincere about their display of worship. It says that they're crying. That's pretty intense, right? Oh, God. Oh, God. Now, pastor's making fun of me because I cry in worship. No, 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 no. No, not all of you. What I'm I'm saying here is this. God sees beyond the expression, the external expression that we offer in worship, and He sees straight into our hearts. So, we don't have a chance to talk about this a lot, so let's see if we can do it here based on the Word of God, right? As I understand it, if the Spirit of the Lord in this facility or any other worship context leads you to raise a hand in worship, then if the Spirit leads you to do that, I believe it's disobedient for you not to. I think you're quenching the Spirit, is what Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians. I think if the Spirit leads you to do it, I think you should raise your hand, right? If the Spirit leads you to raise two hands, whoa, we're not surrendering. No, if the Spirit leads you to raise two hands in worship, I believe that's what you should do. If the Spirit leads you to sing out loud, and off-key, and off-pitch, and out of tune, and inappropriately, if the Spirit leads you to do that, I believe that's what you're supposed to do in obedience to the Lord, right? If the Spirit leads you to run all over the place and scream and shout and tackle people, stop it. <laughs> so, all I need is parameters. Here are the parameters. When you are expressing your heart to God, let it be Spirit driven, let it be Spirit led, let it be sincere, let it come from your heart because He looks past all that stuff. He's not impressed by what you perform. He's moved by your love for Him, right? When your love for Him begins to distract and deter and, quite frankly, scare other people, stop that. And I don't say that as somebody that's just up here and says, well, it was in one of those sermons. No, as the spiritual shepherd of this church, I would say to you, if your expression of worship keeps other people from being allowed to sense the presence of the Lord, that's not from Him. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, how did we get off on this? 1 Corinthians 11, that God is a God of order, that God is one, and God wants to be worshipped in a way where he and he alone is getting the attention. Yeah? They say, well, Pastor, I was going to raise my hand. I just don't know how you feel about that. Well, first, don't be so concerned about how I feel about it. If the Spirit of the Lord is leading you to do it, respond sensitively to the Holy Spirit. Come on, church. Come on. Well, I, I didn't feel like I needed to sing this morning. I felt like I needed to reflect on the words because the Spirit was leading me to absorb, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When the path leads to suffering, blessed be your name. And I didn't feel like I could sing those words this morning because the Spirit was convicting me that I really just want the good stuff from God and I don't want the bad days. I really think God's good on good days, but I really don't know if he's good on bad days or not. And so he was really working my heart. So, Pastor, I didn't really feel like I should sing because the Spirit was working my heart. Stand quietly and just allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, church. Come on, Christian. The the only thing that I'm asking you not to do is not to try to impress people who are here by the way that you worship the God who saved you and created you. Allow Him to be impressed with your heart devotion to Him, with the sincerity in which you will offer it. Say, well, I just don't sound very good. Yeah, if we could stop having that debate, the psalmist says in Psalm 95, 96, and several other psalms, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And so I'm going to ask you, church, just as an evaluation for you, and just a reflection, something that I struggle with, when, you're singing on, when, they're, when they're singing on stage here, and you're singing along with us, and you're standing there, is it the joy of the Lord stirring inside of you, knowing that He's alive and He's real, and this message that we're singing is biblically based, and it's telling us the truth of Scripture, so that we can worship the one and true living God. Are you chasing after false gods who have led you to a false sense of satisfaction and therefore a dissatisfaction with worship? A dissatisfaction with worship. Can I tell you, sometimes, sometimes you not liking the songs is not because of how it was performed, presented, formatted. Sometimes the reason that we don't connect in worship, which we all desire to do, the reason we don't connect in worship is because you're chasing false gods. And therefore you feel uncomfortable when you get in an environment where we're chasing true gods. Because there's only one. I wish it were louder, softer. I wish it were faster, slower. I wish it were more electric, acoustic. Yeah, I wish we didn't have so many drums, but more of them. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, when you're ready to have a conversation about your heart's expression to God, I want to continue that. I want to continue that. Because he says that the people of Israel are crying out with tears before him, but their heart is cold and dark towards him. Oh, I just want God to bless me. Yeah. Yeah. Surrender to him. Stop chasing everything. Hey, listen, is there anything in your life that you will not give up at this very moment if God asks you to? So, well, I wouldn't give up. Yeah, I can think of this. I'm, I'm really in this, I'm really doing this binge watch thing. Yeah, that's sin. Binge watching's not sin, no, no, no. Refusing to give it up for the one true God because he asked for it. That's what the nation of Israel is doing. I've not even gotten to verse 16 yet. Now, verse 13, it says, The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. So they're offering worship to him, and God's saying, no thanks. Your worship's no good here. Because your worship is coming from external expression only, and it's not coming from your heart. That's for me. No thanks. Don't want that worship. Does the Bible say? Yeah. The Bible says. He says, no thanks. I don't want that worship. Verse 14. It says, but you say, why does he not? What's wrong with God, right? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. So what's the second thing that you did? The second thing that you did, nation of Israel, is it's a sin. First was a sin because you're chasing false gods through pagan women. Second, is a sin between you and the wife of your youth. The wife of your youth. That's what my translation says here, ESV. The wife of your youth. It says, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. Now, I'm not sure what your translation says, but can you say this word with me? Covenant. You ready? One, two, three. Covenant. That's right. And so he says, Hey, men of Israel, men of Judah... You got married to Israelite women. You did that. Wife of your youth leads us to believe, Dan, that that's when they were young. When you say, I mean, that's what I would say. We've been married since we were young, Israelite to Israelite, man of God to woman of God, God-fearer, God-worshipper, God-fearer, God-worshipper, uniting together, and God says, now I've got this thing against you, and I think specifically men, but He says, I've got this thing against you, men, you've been faithless, to your wife. You've not honored the covenant that you made between you and your wife. You've broken that, and that causes you to be faithless. Why would they break that covenant, huh? Verse 15, Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? God bringing man and woman, Israelite man and woman together, and then He united them with His Spirit it says, and what was the one God seeking? Ah, <clears throat> what was the one God seeking? And this doesn't read clearly in some of your translations. Here it is in ESV. What was God seeking through an Israelite man being married to an Israelite woman? What was God seeking through man of God, united in holy covenant with woman of God, godly offspring? God was seeking that His people would unite together and they would produce more people who were going to be God-fearers. God-fearers. So if the man is married to a woman and God's intention is that they would produce more worshipers of Him, but the man, men, the man... Is not faithful to this covenant, but he begins to chase women who chase false gods. Now he's chasing false gods. Where did the godly offspring come from? I hope that's not a science question, right? It gets awkward, right? Where did the godly offspring come from? Oh, our generation is not, they they don't fear God. Judges would tell us the reason that our current generation doesn't fear God is because their parents and their grandparents didn't teach them to fear God. That's Judges 2, I believe verse 20. Where did Godly offspring come from? Man who loves God, woman who loves God, man who loves God loves woman who loves God and man who loves God and woman who loves God unite, sensitive audience, and they produce child who's going to be raised to love God. It's Malachi 2.15. What did God desire? Godly offspring. And so God gives us instruction, church. He says, so guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So, men of Israel, he shouts out to them and he says, You need to guard your spirit because your spirit is going to be inclined to be distracted and your spirit's going to want to pursue things that are not the wife of your youth. And when you stop pursuing in covenant relationship the wife that you've pledged yourself to, Man of God wanting to please only God. Woman of God wanting to please only God. When y'all stop being committed to one another, it's going to impact your offspring. So that brings us to verse 16. God says, it says verse 16, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, Covers his garment with violence. And that's a really weird phrase, so so let's hit this. this. This is what that means in ESV. Your translation might pick this up. The man who is pledged to a godly woman, and the man who's responsible for raising up godly offspring, when this man stops being pledged to this woman, he covers his garment in violence, means he does an evil thing against God because now he's chasing these false gods these pagan women and he's neglecting to do his responsibility which is to love his godly wife and produce godly offspring so God says from his perspective he hates that he hates it to be clear when men who entered into a holy covenant marriage union with a godly woman. That godly woman acts like a godly woman. That godly man acts like a godly man. And then they're producing godly offspring. But God, that's his plan. He hates it when the godly man loses interest, by his spirit, in his covenant. And he loses interest in his wife. And he begins to wander and begins to chase younger. That's in the it's in the study, trust me. Younger pagan women who are sacrificing to false gods. God hates that. Let me say it again. Instead of doing what God said, God's way, they say, I want to chase my flesh, let me say that. flesh, And I'm going to do what my flesh says, what my flesh feels good. Ooh, young women, ooh, they're doing some really creative, woo, sexy stuff going on over here. And they're worshiping false gods, pulling me further and further away from my God. God says, I hate that. I hate that. When you divorce your wife, dismissing her, simply for this reason, there's a younger woman out there someplace that's going to cheat, just going to, pull you away from loving and honoring God and the commitments you made before him. Now, great, great. You guys are receiving this really well. Thank you all. It says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves. I think that's for the men. Guard yourselves, men of Israel, in your spirit And do not be faithless. So let me hit four things for you. All right. How do we walk away from this? There's four things quickly that we could say about this text. One, marriage begins with God. Marriage begins with God. And when we look in Genesis chapter two, we see marriage was never Adam's idea. It wasn't even Eve's idea. She wasn't even talking about pretty white dress, picking out the flowers. None of that. Dude wasn't even talking about wedding cake. None of that. Marriage was God's idea from the very beginning. The danger that we run into, church, is this. When we begin to think that marriage is our idea, and what happens there, when we see it as God's idea, we're going to play by His rules, going to be committed to it His way, His plan, producing His results. Yeah? When we don't see it as being... His idea, but now it's our idea, and now we can redefine it. And we get in these these, these conversations now in our culture where people say, well, now, how do you define marriage? And the answer to that church is this, same way God does. He's the one that brings the definition. We can't change the definition based on our circumstances. So God is the one who starts out, and He says, I have created marriage. My idea. We submit to that and we say, God, show us your idea. Now, second is this. That's one. Marriage begins with God. Secondly is this. If you, and this is specifically, if you are single and you're seeking a spouse, I believe the teachings from Malachi would tell us this. You need to seek a spouse, a companion, a a dating partner, someone who loves Jesus. Loves Jesus. Now, a couple of alternatives for you. I did not say you need to seek someone who hates Jesus. Why? Because if you love Jesus and you are intimately engaged with someone who hates Jesus, there will be influence battle. Influence battle. And you say, well, there's just... There's just no good Christian guys out there. Okay? So I'll help you out with that. Christian guys, step up. Single Christian guys, let us help you learn how to be a man of God. You just have to tell us, where do you need help? Now, in this scenario, then, man of God, woman of God, godly offspring... Dad, you have a responsibility to your son. Teach him how to love Jesus. Teach him how to love Jesus. Because one day, your son perhaps, could, maybe, possibly, if he's ever courageous enough, he's going to come knock on my door. And let's understand our relationship really well. I'm not obligated to that at all. So what I would say to you is, men, raise up men of God. If you're single, seek somebody who loves Jesus, not somebody who likes Jesus. Not somebody who likes Jesus. I think it's okay. I'll, I'll go to church with you. I'll go to church with you. Can I tell you what's coming your way? You love Jesus, they like Jesus. It's coming your way. You're in it, some of you, now. Some of you have been in it, and you know what I'm talking about. Don't seek after a spouse who's just I with Jesus. And definitely don't seek a spouse, by the way, who likes Jesus but hates his bride. Well, I love Jesus and everything. I really he's okay, but I'm I can't stand his church. Really? That's the same with Jesus as going up to him personally in his face and saying, I love you, your wife's ugly. From experience, that never goes well. Never. So if you're single, our second truth today is this: seek after a spouse who loves Jesus. Parents, when they start coming around your house for dating or or whatever it is we call it now, when they start coming to your house, one of the things that you can be involved with in that conversation that you need to have, all right? So, well, they just pulled up and got my daughter. No, no, no. No, No, they pulled up and came in, sat down, have a conversation with them about So tell me about your relationship with Jesus. He's all right. Okay. All right. This is going to go great for you. Third is this. Make a covenant before God. Let me touch on this quickly. I wish we had more time to cover all of this, but let's touch on this quickly. At a marriage, what we understand in Christian marriage is this concept. There's always three parties. There's always three parties. There is always the man. There's always the woman. Hopefully, man of God loves Jesus. Woman of God loves Jesus. And there's always God. So, well, we got married at Town Hall. Okay, okay. As Christian marriage at Town Hall, there's always three parties. There's always the man who loves Jesus. There's always the woman who loves Jesus. And there's always God. Marriage begins with God. Marriage is two people who hopefully are seeking after Jesus because they love God. And then marriage is going to be this covenant before God because we're going to say, hey, here's the idea. Ah, can't fulfill my promises to my wife. No, I can't. And as we understand the, the biblical teaching of sin, here's the truth for you. You cannot, on your own, independently of God, fulfill any promises. You'll have some days, because you're a sinner, where you just won't want to. And you'll just say, I just don't feel like it anymore. Oh, my my I, I stopped loving you, because I... Decided I wanted to stop loving you. These are the expressions independent of a covenant with God. A covenant means this. I have with my wife made a pledge to her in front of him. So as the third party, when I decide to break my covenant with her, I have a problem with him. And I have to be reconciled to him. And how do you do that? I've got to be reconciled to her. Marriage is a covenant We often use the word commitment, but in our culture, it seems like commitments are kind of casual. Covenant is a biblical word that says God started this idea. God is going to hold this idea together. Now, lastly is this, four, daily follow God's instructions for marriage. So as we look in Scripture, and I want to give you clear biblical teaching, what the Bible tells us, there's four instructions for a Christian marriage. All right, you ready? One comes from Genesis chapter two. Instruction number one for God's instruction for marriage is this leave. Leave. What God says in the first marriage is this husband, leave your parents. So, other than the three parties man, woman, and God you don't need anybody else bringing influence. That's going to compete with your spouse or your God. Be careful. What the Bible says clearly is this. Men, if you are a married man, married Christian man, married to a Christian woman, and your mama is influencing all of your decisions, that means that you are pushing your bride out of a position that God intends her to be in. You're pushing her out of a place of influence in your life, and you are still intimately tied to your mother. So what's the solution? God says, leave. Leave. Now, you said, why don't you preach this on Mother's Day? The, the idea here is this. Mama, we love you. We love you. But God's plan for marriage is that we produce Godly offspring, through a godly bond, covenant between him and us. And this two of us now are going to do instruction number two. Leave so that you can cleave. Your marriage should be a constant pursuit of trusting each other more. Constant pursuit, cleaving, of reaching out, chasing after, pursuing Developing intimacy with one another. This is God's intention for marriage. Leave, so there's not an extra party involved there. Cleave, so now the bond that you're going to have before God's eyes with your spouse is going to be one where trust and intimacy are going to grow more and more and more. And you say, well, that really sounds great. It's hard. It's hard without God's help. It's hard without God's help. So we see this. We have to leave so we can cleave. And then what it says in Genesis is this, third instruction, become one flesh. One flesh. To be united together unlike any other relationship you've ever had. So here's what he says in verse 16, if you caught that, verse 15. Verse 15, did he not make them one, that's one flesh, with a portion of the Spirit and their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring, so guard yourselves in your spirit. Here's what Malachi is saying. This is written 450 years before Christ. You ready? Malachi is saying this, men, if you're married to a godly woman, your spirit, because you're sinful, like I'm sinful, we have a tendency to chase. We have a tendency to become dissatisfied. We have a tendency, all right? We have a tendency that when we marry the wife of our youth, and then she starts to get older, without us, of course, but she starts to get older, we say, kind of bored here. Malachi, 450 years before Christ, tells you this is coming. And he says, God says through Malachi, guard yourself from becoming dissatisfied With your bride. How? Chase after her. Buy her things. You're welcome, ladies. Buy her things. Talk to her. Ask questions. Compliment her. Why? Why? Because there's more than one woman on the face of the planet. But married man, not for you. had a friend tell me one time, I guess he used to be a friend, he said, hey, just because I've already ordered doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. You're going to get fat and die. Quick. You have a sinful tendency in your life. Jesus being your savior, overcomes all of that he can help you but you have responsibility be careful Say, well i i'm just getting to this this point where i just when i have some free time i like to get on the internet and i kind of just like to like a like to surf a little bit man of god get yourself accountable fast because that's impacting your marriage relationship and that's impacting your godly offspring that's impacting your worship that's impacting your future Can I invite you? God says, guard your spirit. Allow the two, one, leave and then cleave, so you become one flesh. Now, lastly is this, and I know our time. Fourth instruction about marriage. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. And he says this, multiply. Multiply. So can I say to you that your marriage and your marriage being surrendered to Jesus Christ, your marriage being daily, leaning on His covenant, leaning on His grace, daily, daily, needing Him, needing Him, worshiping Him, offering yourself to Him, allowing self to die, to get out of the way, so that He could be lifted high. Your marriage impacts your kids. It impacts your kids. And they are, you know, extremely impressionable, right? To be a, a, a guy that a couple of times I've been sarcastic and I'm going, that stuff's dangerous around, a, around what's now a 14-year-old girl. It's dangerous, right? Kids are watching their parents. and Parents, they're watching your marriage. Now, that easy. No. But can you do it? No. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need him every day. We need him every second. We need him I found recently when we're hanging pictures and the level says that it's level. I say it's level, but my bride says that it's off. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Do you need Jesus in your marriage? single are you looking for someone who loves jesus i'm not talking about light i'm talking about loves jesus you need jesus you don't need somebody culture has sold us on this idea well i just need to get married to somebody fast Mm, christian marriage looks like this eternity and reproduction of witness do you need jesus Can I invite you to bring your marriage? To bring your future marriage? Can I invite you, divorced person, to bring God's plan for you as you go forward with him? Can I encourage you? Seek Jesus. Come to Jesus. Jesus has a plan for you in this culture who's completely distorting it. Jesus wants to see us strengthened. Our relationship with him giving us the power and the fuel to strengthen our relationship with one another would you pray with me father in heaven lord as we come to you today feels like the heat's on thank you for that but lord as we are here at this altar here at this time we pray first and foremost from this teaching from scripture we don't want to re-preach it we just want to declare it let our worship be genuine let our hearts be open Lord, with our marriages, those that are our future marriages, we pray that you would give us the courage now, today, right now, in this moment, that we would not settle for a second best. But we would seek you, trust you, need you more and more as we look for the one you have created for us. God, would you stir inside our hearts those of us who are Christians and married not one of us is perfect. Not one of us does well, does right. Our words are often wrong. Our actions are often wrong. Our attitudes are often wrong. Jesus, we need you in our marriage. We need you today in our marriage. Would you give us courage? to Stop trying to fix stuff. That's what I need, God. I need to quit trying to fix things. I need you to be my Lord and my Savior. I need you to show me grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lord, those of us who come and we bring a past. Maybe things that have been done to us. Maybe things that we were wrong in. Thank you so much, Jesus. We need you today. Because you offer restoration. Healing today, God. Give us the courage to come and receive it. Give us the courage to open our hearts to you. Give us the courage to to be healed today, to be restored today. God, don't let Satan break in here. Teach us from your word. When we take marriage lightly, that offends you. Teach us today to be serious before you, to be sold out before you, to say, yes, God, I want the marriage that you have in mind for me. And Lord, it's these things we pray in your name.